to Belling History with the Good Time Girls, a hyper-local podcast about the quirky history of Bellingham, Washington, and the fourth corner of these United States. Even though we like to keep things close to home, these stories are no less entertaining to the masses and those who find themselves, unfortunately, outside of the PNW. We are your hosts. I am Ren. And I'm Colby, and we are co-owners of Belling History Tours, also known as the Good Time Girls. If you want to know more about our tour business, visit our website at bellinghistory.com. Today's episode is called... The Little Steamship That Couldn't. (laughs) Today we're continuing our dive into the deep waters of shipwrecks. So you'll recall in our last episode, we talked about a shipwreck in 1875 off of Lummy Island, the wreck of the Bark Union, and then the trial of the captain who was believed to have wrecked it on purpose, and the whole saga of the salvage of that wreck and a whole lot of history of salvaging shipwrecks. Yeah, that shipwreck story was interesting in that it may have been on purpose and also that no one lost their lives. There are many stories of shipwrecks with much more horrific outcomes for the people on board, and we do have some of those stories in our our pipeline. But this next story isn't too bad. We've only got one death. So we're easing you in. All right. For us, that's not too bad. Right? This was also a shipwreck that did not yield a shipwreck, meaning that the boat, though beat up, never sank completely and it was immediately salvaged and rebuilt. So there's no cool like shipwreck site down underwater. This is more of a survival tale. Um, Yes. So no no more literal deep dives into... (laughs) We're not diving. Salvage. No, no, no salvage <laughs> Today's story involves another wreck that was fairly close to our town, the wreck of the steamer Buckeye in 1895. Most on board survived and made it to the shore near Fairhaven, which is, for those of you outside, that's Bellingham's south side neighborhood. So this story occurred in April of 1895. There were a good 20 years later than our previous shipwreck. And in 1895, Grover Cleveland was the president. It's still the Gilded Age, but also now the progressive era of social activism and political reform. We're in the midst of another economic depression that began with the Panic of 1893, but to Despite this later, this would be referred to as the gay 90s or the naughty 90s. The naughty 90s were the peak era of saloons and brothels here in Bellingham Bay. And for those of you who haven't been on a Cinegen tour, we've got some serious Wild West vibes around here. The 1890s were boom and bust times in the Pacific Northwest and around Bellingham Bay in particular. We were all hoping for the railroad terminus from the Great Northern Railroad. And spoiler alert, that was dashed when the terminus went to Seattle instead. We have a lot of parallels between the 1870s and the 1890s with the railroads, economic depression, there are just a lot more non-Indigenous people in this part of the PNW 20 years later. So despite not getting the terminus of the Great Northern, railroads galore had reached the communities of the Pacific Northwest by this time, bringing loads more people and making goods and services more readily available. By 1895, we still didn't have the town of Bellingham yet. That wouldn't come until 1903. Of the four smaller towns around Bellingham Bay, by this time, Fairhaven had already absorbed the original town of Bellingham or Unionville, and then Seaholm had become New Whatcom and united with Old Whatcom to rival Fairhaven. In 1895 was also the year of the Blue Canyon coal mine disaster at Lake Whatcom that killed 23 miners. Uh, We'll talk some more about this as it happens just after the shipwreck we are discussing today. 
It was also the year Len Stenger saw a sea serpent in the bay later that summer. If you listen to our earlier episodes about sea monsters, that would have been a few months after today's maritime disaster and is apparently unrelated. (laughs) Hmm. Also, later that summer of 1895, Mark Twain spoke at the Lighthouse Theater and stayed in the Fairhaven Hotel. He didn't have great reviews (laughs) of our little town. And at this time, maritime travel continued to be very important, especially for people living on the islands of the San Juans and around the waterways of the Sound. We're going to talk today about the steamer Buckeye. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. It was a small wood-burning steamboat. The Buckeye, like many boats, got a makeover more than once. So we're just going to generally know it was about 60 feet. And that's not that huge, again. So yeah. that's like four cars in length. It's not a very large Your boat. little guys is the Mosquito Fleet, yes. right? So we have this picture here from the Saltwater People Historical Society's blog of the Buckeye. And there's another photo of it that I've come across where it looks quite different. And I don't know what the dates are for either of these, but I'm thinking this one here that we're looking at is more or less what it looked like at the time. It looks very much to me like one of the old classic Mickey Mouse cartoons, you know, Steamboat Willie Willie. and Mm. or like a Popeye kind of vibe. It is definitely like old timey, but... It looks like a teeny tiny ferry. So this boat was part of what we were talking about, what we referred to as the Mosquito Fleet of Puget Sound. Interestingly, that term Mosquito Fleet came from various fleets of small boats in the U.S. Navy. The term became adopted here in the Pacific Northwest for the fleets of small steam vessels that were used in the Puget Sound during the late 19th and early 20th century. The Puget Sound Mosquito Fleet consisted of a bunch of different private transportation companies running these little passenger and freight boats around Puget Sound and nearby waterways and rivers. So there were lots of steamers and stern wheelers going up and down the sound and stopping at every waterfront dock, delivering people and goods all around. So we had mentioned last time that steamboat technology had arrived very early on and was coexisting with the sailing ships. So we're still seeing that gradual transition, but more and more steamboats, they were gaining steam, if you will. (laughs) Wow. So you had competition from railroads now for some of that passenger and freight traffic. And then you're going to get automobiles coming on the scene. And now our Washington State ferry system runs on pretty much a lot of the same routes that those early Mosquito fleet boats did. While steamboats were shifted from route to route, there was a tendency for vessels to be run on the same little routes for long periods of time. Uh They didn't have modern radar equipment. No GPS. So you really had to rely on navigational skill and experience. So the more you knew your route, the more familiar you were with the mm. particular hazards and things in yeah. that area, the Hence better. why they keep you on there yeah. for a while. That makes yeah, sense. so that was part of what would make a run safe and profitable as having knowledgeable crew. Mm-hmm. It wasn't easy to put a new boat on a new route without a crew with strong local experience. The steamboats could not really stop running like at night or in bad weather. Sometimes they would, but they they kind of had to keep on going. According to Captain Charles <laughs> Wallace, the Buckeye was apparently built around 1890 in Seattle by his father, Oliver J. Wallace. Charles Wallace was a longtime steamboat captain who had reminisced about the Buckeye as the first steamboat he operated. At the time that the boat was hauling materials for building the Great Northern Railroad between Ballard and Everett. In March of 1891, the steamer Buckeye was rumored to have gone down in the sound between Edmonds and Appletree Cove with 20 passengers, and the newspapers printed as much. 
headlines asserted, Lost in the sound. Steamer Buckeye went down with 20 passengers, mostly women from Edmonds. (laughs) Dark? (laughs) The Buckeye had been loaded with cabbages and other market vegetables. The majority of the 20 people were women. A storm came up. A railroad grader said he saw a light bobbing on the water and then it disappeared. The boat did not return to Edmonds as expected and the beach was reportedly strewn with cabbages and wreckage. Thus, the rumor of the boat having been wrecked began circulating. However, that story was disproved by the arrival of the steamer on the next day. Oopsie doopsie. Well, the women, <laughs> turns out the Buckeye just decided to wait out the storm and return the next morning instead. Must have lost some cabbages overboard. Just roll I love in, the papers. Roll just in this like, way and that. They're like, it must be dead. It's been 20 minutes. We better sound the alarm. Yeah, obviously, they didn't have a way to communicate to Apple Tree Cove, so apparently the story of the disappearing light and the cabbages washing ashore caused people to fear the worst, which I guess I can't really blame them back in the day. I probably would have thought that, too. Everybody dies all the time. You're like, yeah. <laughs> Some cabbages. (laughs) 20 women must be dead. At some point, the Buckeye was put on a route between Seattle and Union City, and then its owners had some financial difficulties, and it went into receivership and was sold off and ended up on its San Juan Island route. Okay, so the Buckeye was purchased by Andrew Newhall of Orcas Island. So a little bit about Newhall. If you are an islander, you might recognize the name or you might not. But if you are familiar with Rosario on Orcas Island, that was originally the little town of Newhall. So Andrew Newhall was born in 1845 in Maine. So he was about 50 years old in 1895 at the time of the, the wreck. He's the owner of the boat. He had come out to the Pacific Northwest in the 1880s and purchased some property on Orcas Island, but he and his brother and some of their other relatives incorporated the Cascade Bay Lumber and Manufacturing Company, which was the first sawmill out there at that time. And then he shifted to steamboating, and so then we get to call him Captain. So his little spot there became the village of Newhall and had a post office and was the port of the steamer Buckeye. Uh. So most people are familiar with that location, which is now called Rosario, where we have a fancy resort. Mm -hmm. In 1905, so about 10 years after this occurred, the Seattle former mayor and shipbuilder Robert Moran bought the entire village off of Newhall and renamed it Rosario. Spent lots of money making it all fancy. Now there's a museum and a state park there and everything. Anyway, back to the 1890s. Newhall buys the steamer Buckeye, and he also gets the contract to carry the mail, so he's stoked about all that. The steamer Buckeye regularly traveled back and forth with the mail, passengers, and freight between the islands and Bellingham Bay. The route was more or less stopping at various island ports, then Anacortes, and then up to Bellingham Bay, and then back again. Many boats at this time did not just serve one purpose. They were carrying mail, they were carrying freight, they were carrying passengers, they were carrying gossip. Yeah, the mail was like a huge deal. Think about it. This was how you got any kind of news slash gossip slash anything. And this was like a regular way to get it on the water versus land. Like it probably was a lot quicker. (laughs) Express. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. In 1894, the Islander commented, Steamer Buckeye is becoming more popular every day. She has lately been fitted up with a nice lady's cabin. She's an ideal boat for excursion parties. Well, the Buckeye, she's carrying the ladies. 
party boat. Can I get some champs? Sorry, that was my real housewives coming out. They, <laughs> they go on a lot of boats the party boat. and they drink yeah. a lot of champs. Yeah. So, um, they need an excursion. They would have loved it. Mm-hmm. At the time of the wreck in 1895, the steamer Buckeye was traveling between Friday Harbor and New Whatcom when it capsized in Bellingham Bay, south of Eliza Island, two miles off the site of the Chuckanut Quarry, or midway between Eliza Island and Wildcat Cove. Eliza Island is the site of Jim Wardner's Black Cat Ranch. If you've been on a Gore Lore Tour in Fairhaven, you'll know all about it. So essentially, it floundered off of where we now have Larrabee State Park. Of course, at that time, there was not much there, not even really a road yet. There was sort of a wagon road known as the Burfiend Road that went to the home site of Richard or Dick Dietrich. (laughs) Burfiend in that area. There was also a lot of talk and planning for both a waterfront road and a railroad route, but neither had been put in yet. So those who landed, it was not easy going in that little spot. Basically, it threw the woods from there. We'll get to that. So according to news reports, there were six passengers and a crew of five aboard the vessel. According to other news reports, there were a crew of six and five passengers. So there's a few people who I'm like, were they crew? Were they passenger? Mm -hmm. Question marks? I don't know. So we had the crew consisting of the captain, Oscar Hahn, the mate, Charles E. Bowden, the engineer, E.A. Snyder, bit of a mystery man, and the fireman, a young stir named Melvin Cummins. And then there was a cook, question mark, (laughs) who's never specifically named in any article I could find. The passengers are Will D. Jenkins. Then there was a man named William Asher, a man named W.H. Bennett, and a couple, the Henry and Bertha Kautzman. Tony Vote. He was a rancher slash butcher. He had the meat. Okay. Okay. (laughs) He had the cows. Got it. on the ship. Got we'll it. We'll get to that. I had to look up some sea captain terminology because I kept getting confused because it literally seems like everyone in the Pacific Northwest is captain somebody. <laughs> and I'm like, what does this mean? Does it mean they they have a boat? Right. How do you be a captain? How do you be yeah. a captain? Yes. So I, I think it's fairly similar all to get your captain's various licenses or whatever they are now. But I think there are different levels of captain. So there might be more than one captain on a ship, but only one captain. Okay. (laughs) Got it. Makes sense. Yep. Because, yeah, the two top officers in charge on this boat are the captain and the chief mate. But the chief mate is also called captain. So I was so confused. Like, who's the captain yeah, here? What is happening? It's like, okay. who's on first? Yeah. So <laughs> the the main captain, the captain captain, is his legal title is actually master. And he's in command of the ship. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Master captain. Master captain. And he has the total authority and is personally responsible for everything on board a ship and okay. every person. And then the chief mate, the second in command, sometimes called first officer, he is responsible to and acts under command of the captain. And he has a bunch of duties like coordinating loading stuff on the ship safely and he does a lot of other stuff on the ship and manages the activities of the crew but the important difference is he doesn't have the personal responsibility or the potential for personal loss invested in it that a captain does he doesn't get paid as much that license level is easier to get okay and so i guess to a master has to have served at least one year as a chief mate Mm-hmm. So in our story, we've got Captain Oscar Hahn, the master captain, and he is somewhat of a newbie. According to reports, he had only taken out his first master's papers a short time ago, and the Buckeye was his first command. He had previously been a mate on a boat called the Dispatch, which had burned the year prior at Friday Harbor. 
So Oscar Hahn was born in 1872 in Wisconsin, so he was about 23 years old at the time. Oh, no. So he's a young captain here. Yeah, that's born young. And he was married. His wife had just given birth to their son, Arthur, in 1894. That was their first child, so he had a little one at home, and he was only 23 years old. So he's in command of the ship. And there was a quote from the Islander saying, Captain Hahn of the steamer Buckeye is fast winning his way in popular esteem by his quiet, courteous, and gentlemanly manner of conducting business. Mm. So he was a well-liked young captain. Yeah. And the ladies on the boat. This is the party boat. So, <laughs> of course. Like, young, handsome captain boy. Like Oscar. Uh-huh. The mate. So, second in command. Now we know it was Captain <laughs> Charles Edward Bowden. Uh, so he was he was at the wheel when the steamer was wrecked. He was much older than Han, which may have played into some dynamics that weren't great with the two of them. And afterwards, he admitted to bad feelings between him and Captain Han, perhaps due to the age difference and their respective ranks. Who knows? Bowden was born about 1852 in New Zealand, so he was a good 20 years older than Han. He was in his 40s at the time of the wreck. Bowden had been, quote, many years on the water, including a long experience in uh, Puget Sound. He built the schooner Perry in 1875 and in 1887 had her converted into a steamer, of which he was a master for 16 years until 1891. So damn, he's got some real experience here. Probably he had named the schooner after his wife, Electa Perry. Bowden and Electa had two daughters, Ida and Alice, who were teenagers at the time of the wreck of the Buckeye. Also, his wife had left him for another man in 1891, oh my god, by whom she had more children. So perhaps Bowden was experiencing hard times at the time of the wreck. Probably not the most fun guy to deal with if you're a 23-year-old hotshot captain. But <laughs> Also, I could see where Bowden's probably like this young whippersnapper yeah, and my guy. life sucks and I'm fucking... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> I could see where there'd be bad feelings, perhaps. All right. So then the engineer, we had the chief engineer, E.A. Snyder. We're not able to confirm his full name or thus his identity, unfortunately, but we know he was in the engine room at the time of the wreck. Naturally. Just note that the job of an engineer on a ship is to operate and maintain the engine and other mechanical systems on board the vessel. This is not an engineer in the sense of designing ship. This is the hands-on, sweaty, dirty, oily job. At least Snyder was named and the rest of the crew, which was the fireman and the cook, went unnamed in most of these articles. We found out that the fireman was Melvin J. Cummins because he was from Anacortes and the Anacortes paper was a little indignant. He had not been mentioned by name, rightfully so. Melvin Cummins was only 16 years old and he was working as a fireman on the steamer. The reason he's not named and, and the reason a 16 year old is doing this job is because it's a real shit job. <laughs> also, fireman could also be called the stoker and job is just like it sounds, keeping the fires burning is his job. It's not, it's not putting out fires, it's keeping fires burning. This involved real hard physical labor, shoveling the fuel, wood, I think in this case, or often coal into the firebox of the ship's boiler. The space he would be working in was below the waterline of the ship and very hot. Mm -hmm. Now, because this was a pretty small little wood-burning boat, it wasn't as nasty as you might have seen depicted maybe in the Titanic. <laughs> this would be way smaller. <laughs> boiler rooms and whatnot. Sweaty guys and coal nonstop. Yeah, the coal and the soot yeah. and whatnot. Suffice to say, uh, Melvin's was yeah, definitely low-paying, <laughs> entry-level job on a boat. We know Melvin was born in 1878 in North Dakota. His parents 
parents were Levi Warren and Ida Elmina Cummins, and they came to Oregon in the 1880s, and then they were up to Anacortes by the 1890s. Melvin was their oldest child, and he had, he's 16, and he has around eight younger siblings at the time of the wreck, with more to follow. So we're going to come back to Melvin's story, but hallelujah, was um, Ida busy there? Uh, I think most women, unfortunately. Yeah, oh, I guess, yeah, she's representative. (laughs) Just thinking. (laughs) Okay, so the mystery cook, who was not Mm. named in any article I could found in any newspaper. So this actually made me suspicious that maybe the cook was not white, because Uh, that was a very common thing, where you'd see accounts of shipwrecks and crew members that were not white, just were not even named or listed or anything, and they would just be like, and some Chinese crew or something like that. But this cook does seem to have been put on the lifeboat and survived, which made me lean back to, hmm, maybe he was white. (laughs) I don't know. We know nothing about the cook. So if anyone knows the cook that survived the wreck of the steamer Buckeye, yeah, we'd love to know. That's what we know about the crew on the steamer Buckeye. And at the time of the accident, the passengers we mentioned, we'll go into them. So first of all, we had Weldy Jenkins. Jenkins was famously one of the men who started the Reveille newspaper in the town of Whatcom or New Whatcom. So it went through various incarnations of the Whatcom Reveille, the Weekly Reveille, the Bellingham Bay Reveille. It's really confusing, but they always had Reveille in there. Okay. And they had the Reveille offices originally stood up at the top of C Street overlooking Whatcom Creek. There's some great pictures. Photos of that old building. Mm-hmm. So he was born in 1852 in Illinois, but raised in Nebraska, where his father, D.C. Jenkins, was a pioneer and publisher. That's how Will D. gets into the game. He becomes an editor and publisher himself in Kansas before coming to Whatcom as part of the Kansas Colony in 1882. And a bunch of his siblings and parents also, they all came to Bellingham, or what would become Bellingham, Whatcom at the time, and they had two houses overlooking the bluff on Eldridge Avenue. And Wilde Jenkins founded the Reveille in 1883 with another guy, Thomas Nicklin. They published that for six years. And then Jenkins was elected mayor of Whatcom two times, of consolidated New Whatcom in 1891. All right. And he started the populist newspaper, The Champion, in 1893. So that's just before our wreck here. He had five children, three by his first wife and two by his second. So at the time of the wreck, he was 43 with five children, including two infants at home by wife number two. Heavens to Betsy. All right. Oh, that makes me tired. I know. And so then we had the abstractors, William Asher and W.H. Bennett. And so these guys were businessmen of New Whatcom. I think they were partners in business together. So I was like, what the heck is an abstractor? (laughs) Yes, please tell. So they locate, analyze, and evaluate title records for land, homes, and other property, which probably would have been really useful at these times when real estate was just boom boom booming mm-hmm. you um, needed somebody to actually go out there and, and like figure look at out it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah what it was worth i guess so not much information about wh bennett including what wh stands for so <laughs> he's bennett william l asher was born in 1848 in indiana and was about 47 years of age then at the time of the wreck with a wife and teenage daughter living in whatcom we had tony vote the rancher now, this guy, so he lived at Friday Harbor, and he was a stock raiser slash wheeled and dealed in cows and sheep, okay. and also was a butcher of said animals. Yeah. So he was bringing some livestock and produce over to the mainland. Not cabbages. He was about 35 years of age, unmarried. 
At the time of the wreck, he was in the bottom of the boat with his livestock. Oh, dear. And it said he <laughs> lost, hard. well, he lost all of it and, oh. and some produce that he was bringing to. So maybe there were some cabbages. <laughs> so he lost about $5,000 in today's money worth of stuff. So it wasn't a ton. Not a ton. It wasn't a big boat. Not- but uh, next we had the Kautzmans. Mr. and Mrs. Kautzman were living in Anacortes at the time. Kautzman was an owner operator of the Wilson House Hotel in Anacortes oh. and a liquor dealer. Mm-hmm. Okay, Kautzman. Um, yeah, so we're German here. He was coming to Whatcom because he owned property there on Elk Street. So he was coming to pay oh. his taxes on that property. And reportedly, he was looking to start up a liquor business in that town as well. Uh, on Whatcom. On yeah. Elk, which is State Street as we know it today, yes. y'all. Yes, thank you. So Henry Kautzman was 55 years old, born around 1840 in Germany. And his wife was Bertha and also German and about 40 years old or so at the time of the wreck. So they had been married in Kansas and had two sons, August and Henry. Henry Jr., who Mm. were 17 and 11 years of age, respectively, and they were not on the journey with their parents. So that's everybody, I think. Okay. We've accounted for, well, we've mostly accounted for everyone on board. So we got to get to the wreck. So we know the abstractors, Bennett and Asher, were returning to Whatcom from West Sound, where they had gone to appraise some property. So presumably were some of the first passengers on board at Orcas Island. At Friday Harbor on San Juan Island is presumably where Rancher butchie butcher rancher butchie ranchy butcher <laughs> presumably where the butcher tony vote and his livestock and freight were loaded the papers described the buckeye as having left there heavily loaded with livestock and hay the livestock included five cattle 20 sheep and two hogs he was down there with them when the bow that does not sound like a good time <laughs> some of the passengers were reported that the steamer was badly listed to the port or left side all the way up from anacortes due to the perhaps badly loaded freight animal so it was a little wobbly. It was a little tilty to one side. Yeah, listing to one side. Okay. The steamer stopped at Anacortes for mail and passengers at 2.30. Presumably, the Cotsmans boarded at Anacortes, being from there, and were headed for Whatcom. Will D. Jenkins also got on at Anacortes. He lived in Whatcom. The weather was stormy, but as the steamer had safely crossed Rosario Strait, it was not thought that an accident was a possibility between there and Whatcom. So I guess they crossed Rosario Strait to get to Anacortes. Cordis. Just an FYI, Rosario Strait separates San Juan, Skagit, and Whatcom counties. It continues to be a major shipping channel and is apparently frequently preferred to other passages to the west due to the advantageous currents and whatnot. A strait just being a narrow channel between land masses. We've got Haro Strait outside of the San Juan separating the islands from Canada, bigger straits of Georgia, and Juan de Fuca. So at any rate, despite the rough weather, all went well until off Chacanat when an unusually heavy southeast wind gust struck the steamer. An account in The Blade says... The storm was terrific and the sea was furious, surging over the boat at intervals like a huge avalanche. The pilot allowed her to run in the trough of the sea. The cargo was shifted and shuffled at the will of the waves and suddenly a mighty billow dashed its great bulk against the doomed vessel, raised it high in the air and hurled it down into the seething trough. The cattle huddled to the port side. The cargo slid to the diction of gravitation and the little wave following rolled the buckeye over on her port side a hopeless wreck at the mercy of the wind and waves. That sounds really fucking scary. (laughs) Here's another account from the Seattle P.I., 
which says, Anthony Vogt, a German stock dealer of Friday Harbor, who was in the bow below with the livestock, which was billed to Fairhaven, gives one of the clearest accounts of the disaster. There were five head of cattle, 20 sheep, and two hogs, all herded in the bow, and he was below among them, doing what he could to keep them from lurching from one side of the narrow vessel to the other. But all that he could do availed little after the steamer passed Eliza Island. The wind was blowing a gale, the waves running high, and the little vessel careened, so that the livestock all lurched to the lower side and allowed the water to pour through the hatchways in such volume that she could not right herself and quickly filled. <sighs> Sounds harrowing. Heavens to Batsy. Right. Okay, all the sheep are on one side. So the livestock in the hold had been problematic, obviously, from the beginning. One account accused Vote of having, quote, let the cattle loose below. But other reports say he was doing his best to keep them from running or sliding to one side of the boat, which it sounds like he knew was problematic, but also difficult due to gravity and the boat being tossed by these big waves. He's probably getting slammed back and forth too down <laughs> there. Sounds terrible. <sighs> and the shit. So I guess there had been some kind of issue with the doors to where the cattle were. Because mm. in a later account, Mr. Bennett, he said that if the doors below where the stock were had been properly barricaded so as to shut out the water, the steamer would have righted. So he said it was the water pouring through the doors, which added to the weight of the frightened livestock that are all on one side of the side boat. Of the boat, crushing and boat. so the boat just couldn't right itself once you get a wave of water adding in there to that. Yeah. He said he had spoken to Mr. Bowden, who is first mate, about the necessity of fastening the doors. And it, he said he even offered to do it himself oh. if he could give him a hammer and nails. And then according to first mate Bowden, he said, yeah, Bennett had spoken to him about it. And then he said that he spoke to the captain. <laughs> and then he said. Who's ultimately in charge. Oh, the 23-year-old yeah. little hotshot so, boy. I mean, mm-hmm. Bowden's at the wheel. He's driving the boat. He's got all his duties. He could clearly, yeah, he was in charge of the shit coming on and the crew and all of that. Yes. He could have done that. Well, Should have done that. I don't know. But ultimately, it's up to the captain, which he said he told him. What's the captain doing? I don't think closing some fucking doors. He's not driving I'm the sorry. Ship, I'm getting... I'm also <laughs> getting... Okay. I understand, though. Okay. Anyway. There could be a little, like, weird communication. So, well, and then listen to this. But they didn't think it was okay. going to be an issue. So here, this is ac- according to Bowden. So okay. take that. It's his side. All right. But he said he told Captain Hahn, and the captain did not do anything about it, but instead turned to the other passengers and remarked that Bowden was afraid. And that things would only get worse in Bellingham Bay. Which, does that mean he's being kind of snarky, kind of a dick? Little hot shot boy, he's yes. Like, mm, you afraid, Bowden? This is the vibe I get. It's just going to get worse. Mm. I don't know. At any mm. rate, it sounds like people knew the doors were an issue and there was some bucks being passed on the Buckeye. <laughs> Wasn't me. I told him mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Yep. Ultimately, whose job was it to deal with the doors? I, I don't know. It sounds like some boy egos happened <laughs> and shit went down. Yes. They thought things were all going to be okay. They had a little boy fight about it. Yes. And then it didn't turn out so well. So look again at this picture. Yes. Of the vessel. Yeah. And imagine that big ass door on the bottom there. Oof. I'm like, is that that if a wave was coming through? If there, you're going through a stormy sea, why would you not? Close that. I mean, I think it was closed, but it maybe but water was getting to, like, in. I don't make know. it extra close. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, water was getting in. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and then the the animals were down there. Yeah, that is a lot of animals in that little tiny mm-hmm. boat. And then the people's quarters are like in the back there, where those littler windows are. 
Yeah, so everybody remember this thing is the size of the length of four cars. Yeah, it's not so they have large. twenty sheep and five big cows and Grand two hogs there. that are just going to eat everybody alive. Swim to shore and like be fine. Oh no, <laughs> things are fucking nuts. Oh no, spoiler. <laughs> but uh, you guys will we'll obviously post this and and we'll have a link to it so you can go and look at this boat. But holy moly, I can't even imagine the chaos that was happening. It gets okay. worse. Okay, buckle up. Bitch. All right, so where was everyone and what were they doing when the disaster struck? So we know Tony Vogt. <laughs> we know where he was. He was taking care of his cattle in the bow of the boat. When the heavy seas commenced to strike the steamer, the waves washed over the top of the doors and drenched him, and he began to realize it was time to go. Ominous. <laughs> According to the blade, the passengers were in the cabins behind where the livestock were. There were two cabins. Mr. Jenkins occupied the forward cabin alone, and the rest were in the rear cabin. According to the blade, the first animation Mr. Jenkins had of the accident was a great flood bursting open the door, <laughs> rushing through the first cabin into the second. Whew, with the velocity and volume of a mountain river, followed by the cries and screams and wild confusion of the passengers and crew who struggled waist deep in the water to save themselves. According to Mr. Asher, as the water rolled into the cabin, Mr. Bennett broke a side light and the two of them climbed out and began breaking out all the windows and helping the others out. According to the blade, quote, in the confusion resulting from the horror of the crisis, Mrs. Koutsman was almost drowned in the cabin and the men carried her out. So the passengers were all had all made it outside through the windows, except Kautzman, who was too large to pass through the opening. The fireman, Melvin Cummins, recounted, quote, I was in the engine room with Mr. Snyder, and the only way to escape was to go hand over hand up the main steam pipe that came by a little open hatch on the upper deck with no covering on it. Up I went, water on my heels all the way up. When the chief and I got up on deck, the ship had a heavy list and the lower deck was underwater. According to first mate Bowden's account, when the boat swamped, quote, all was confusion. No orders were given by the captain and there was a total absence of discipline among the crew. So we know Bowden was steering the boat. Notably, Captain Hahn's whereabouts were not mentioned, nor does he seem to have told his story to any newspaper. This is all his responsibility, so keeping his mouth shut was probably smart, but also he's a young captain and was probably pretty traumatized by all of this. It sounds like, yeah, he was nowhere to be found. I know. It was weird. I kept being like, what about the captain? What's he doing? <laughs> yeah. they're like telling everybody's story, and I'm like, they never oh, man. really give his side of the thing. It could be because he was keeping his mouth in a bit. It could have been because he's shitting his pants with the cows. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's weird. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Sympathy for all these folks. Was not. Uh, yeah. So the boat is on its side. Chaos is happening. And guess what? We've got lifeboat issues. Oh. Every time. Ooh. <laughs> I swear. According to the blade... As evidence of poor judgment and carelessness, it is noted that two rowboats were fastened to the steamer on the side that was listed, so that when the vessel capsized, the only reasonably safe means of salvation was unattainable, being under the wreck. Okay. <laughs> so Bummer. <laughs> also, it got confusing in all these accounts because they're kind of all referring to lifeboats, life rafts, and dinghies. Yeah. And I'm like, are these all the same things? What are they different? So lifeboats are small, rigid boats used for the emergency evacuation of a vessel. A dinghy is a small boat, so is a lifeboat, but a dinghy can be larger. So that term lifeboat just describes the function more than the form. Dinghy is like a type or form of boat. Gotcha. But they, yeah, it gets very confusing because they're using all these terms. Mm-hmm. And guess what? The rules about lifeboats didn't really get sorted out until very well. We're talking after the Titanic sank. <laughs> 
you know? Oh, boy. Um, They were not inflatable lifeboats yet, so there's kind of an issue of how to have sufficient lifeboats for a lot of people because they're these big, bulky things. Huge boats. And where do you put them on a boat? Mm -hmm. So it was actually decided that it was more dangerous to have, like, enough lifeboats because they'd be taking up all the space and crowding the ship. So it was a whole issue. Damn. So Vogt said he climbed to the upper deck and cut away a small boat, but made the mistake of lowering her bow foremost so that she was swamped almost instantly. Just went. Wait, bow's front. Stern's back. Went head first. Yeah, and and, and the waves got in it, and it was like, (laughs) glug, glug, glug. Okay, cool. So it was like, now we're down another boat. Oh, dear. So we've got two that are sunk under the ship. He loses another one. Okay. Yeah, so they cut away the dinghy at this point, (laughs) and so we got a couple small boats. We got dinghies, submerged, lost. (laughs) So they're down to this one last little boat and a life raft or two. And so... They everybody rushed to the one small boat and they realized we're not all gonna fit. <laughs> okay. So Asher and Bennett, the two abstractors, they said that they saw this problem and climbed out voluntarily. So Aww. and then Captain Han said to the mate, Bowden, Hey buddy, why don't you stay with the wreck? I'll go ashore with all these people and I'll come back for you. Oh gosh. <laughs> So, <laughs> Bowden stays with the two abstractors and freaking Mr. Kotzman, who's still stuck. He, he can't, can't get, get through the, the fucking window. window. And oh. meanwhile, his, like, wife, wife is in hysterics is... and has just been, like, loaded into the boat. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, here we go. Okay. So... Kotzman, this is according to the blade, quote, Kotzman, whose neck and nose had been cut severely, seemed unable to comprehend his peril. He stood in the cabin with his head and shoulders out of the starboard light or window through which the rest had escaped. Blood flowed profusely from his wounds, and the spectators regarded him with horror and concern. Mrs. Kotzman was frantic with grief at so dreadful a separation from her doomed husband. But the overloaded skiff shot away like a rocket, and the wreck was soon lost view in the distance so the small boat takes off with captain oscar hahn engineer snyder the mystery cook melvin the 16 year old fireman mrs cotsman will d jenkins and tony boat so they're off in the boat and so you got Bowden, two abstractors and cotsman stuck and we're hanging out on the wreck of okay. the buckeye all right so the captain has left the ship right which that's not how it's that goes not really a cool thing to do no Okay. The idea of the captain going down with the ship is a maritime tradition. Even I had heard of that. (laughs) Because the captain holds the ultimate responsibility for everyone on board. They're supposed to strive to save everyone on board or die trying. So this is related to another protocol, which was women and children first. You've all heard that. Both are tied to this Victorian ideal of chivalry. But also the fact that there is money and people's lives tied up here. And someone has to be ultimately responsible for all of that. So the tradition holds that the captain should be the last person to leave the ship alive before it sinks and if he cannot evacuate the crew or passengers he will not save himself even if he has an opportunity to do so this is more of a social norm that a captain would feel compelled to comply with it is not explicitly illegal right but a captain could be charged with other crimes like manslaughter if lives are lost under maritime law abandoning a ship has legal consequences including salvage rights so technically a captain can give orders to abandon ship and there are a lot of technical details to consider whether the ship is sinking or capsized, as it was the case in this case, etc. 
And also, like, in, imagine in the moment trying to assess, like, whether the ship is going to continue to sink or not. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> no, there's a lot to consider. But basically, um, we think several things are going on in the case of the Buckeye. It's a very small ship with a small number of passengers. They do appear to have been following the women and children first protocol, more or less. The one woman on board was put into the lifeboat, and the others were the youngest persons and the men who had very young children at home to provide for. That included Captain Oscar Hahn. Ah. So it may have been a situation where things were happening quickly, but they would have recognized this for sure. Mate Bowden agreeing to stay with the ship. Uh, also, it's easy to understand why this whole event didn't help matters of the bad feelings between Hahn and Bowden. And we're going to come back to that. But okay, that gives me a little bit of like empathy because Hahn had a little baby. Yeah. And yeah. poor Bowden. I mean, God. I don't know how they made the decision. It was, not, they probably no, didn't have a lot of time. Probably chaos, yeah. <laughs> So, meanwhile, Kotzman had finally succeeded in wriggling out of the window, badly cut and bloody. Sweet Jesus, thank the Lord. (laughs) Wait, wait, now they're all gone. And now it's Kotzman and the the Two abstractors and Bowden. So we got four gentlemen left on the boat. The older gentlemen. So, according to the Blade, soon after Mr. Kotzman extricated himself and strapped on the only life preserver in sight, a great, bulky, awkward affair, not unlike the chaff conductor of a threshing machine good lord so that was their description and i stared at images of old-timey threshing machines trying to understand this this description do tell i don't know <laughs> that makes no sense. i cannot understand for the life of me what they meant by this analogy so if anyone out there knows yeah. so and also apparently there's only one life preserver for fucking real so that doesn't sound ideal no and this term, when I think of life preservers, I think of those little O-shaped floaty rings. That, oh, oh they, for sure. Because lifesavers, you know. Um, but also, also like a life jacket or a life vest, what yeah. we think of like that. So something around your body that keeps you afloat. Yeah. And they come in different forms. But so we've got these life rafts, too. So these guys that are left on the boat, all they have is this one life preser- life vest or whatever it is, and some life rafts, which they then take and secure to the wreck of the boat. Okay, because the boat's still halfway. It's just kind of hanging out, mm-hmm. being tossed around in the waves. It's not gone down. You know, they don't want to just cut loose on the rafts because then you're just tossing around like a little fucking... It's stormy. Right? Yes, it's big waves. Scary, yeah. I think they're trying to like stick together with the ship. So when the captain comes back, they're there. Mm-hmm. So they're like, let's latch on to this ship. So I had to look up what these life rafts might have been looking like. Oh, yeah. Look at these guys. <laughs> so again, no inflatable technology. These are like, think Tom fucking Sawyer, Huck Finn raft. <laughs> like real. some sticks strapped some... together. No, it's a little more tech than that. But essentially, it looks like a oh, wood pallet to me. Not a whole lot. And these things look heavy. Yeah. And I can't even see any handles on. There's a couple different varieties, but I'm like, how do you hold on to that? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So it looks like, yeah, a wooden pallet with something buoyant sandwiched inside. It just seems like this would not be something you'd want to be stuck on while being tossed in large waves on the freezing cold. If I were getting onto a boat and that was my life raft, I would say, no, thank you. I'll go the long way around. <laughs> like, this one looks like it could make a good, like, sled. Seriously, it looks like a toboggan. It is, and it looks heavy as shit. And again, no handles. Right? I'm like, what? not a single handle <laughs> on either. Oh, my Lord. Maybe the, there's a, like, museum example. So maybe they had some kind of straps that have rotted away or something. I hope. Anyway. <laughs> um, 
So interestingly, a little weird aside here, two collapsible designs for life rafts had been patented mm. by a woman named Maria Hauser Beasley in yes, the bitch. 1880s. Yes. This woman was an inventing whiz. Mm. She garnered success with barrel making machine parts. But anyway, cool. Her, her cool invention um, had hollow metal floats and it made the storing the whole thing easier. Anyway, oh, they did not have her life rafts. I don't, <laughs> we don't know exactly what kind of lifeboats they had it. on the Buckeye, but certainly it wasn't ideal sounding. There was no steering, right? You're, you have no paddles. You're hanging on. You're being You're just tops. waiting for somebody to come yeah. and save you. Yeah. So they get on these life rafts and it's not really clear. It's Some articles make it seem like there were two and some just one. They did seem to have tied hide them to the steamer. But then, guess what? The Buckeye starts to go sinky-sinky a little more, and they panic and cut loose their ropes. Can't be hanging on Because, yeah, that. you don't want to be going down, pulled down by the ship. So now they're at the mercy of the waves on those little rafts. All right. So meanwhile, on the dinghy or lifeboat or whatever, what have you. The one with the paddle. The steerable one. The last lifeboat was carefully lowered, and the captain, Oscar Hahn, engineer Snyder, the cook, Fireman vote Wildy Jenkins of the city and Mrs. Koutsman of Anacortes put off in her for the shore about three miles distant with Captain Hahn and Engineer Snyder at the oars. This was the most terrible time. The woman had been forced into the boat by vote and was frantic upon being separated from her husband, who was covered with blood and a hideous sight. The passengers were screaming, and it seemed that the whole party would be swallowed up by the waves, which came roaring in and tossed the dinghy up in the air and then engulfed them in the seething brine. According to Cummins, we got away from the wreck, but water began to come into the boat and we had nothing to bail it out with. So one of the passengers took off a big shoe and started dipping out the water. Vote stated that they were using shoes, hats, and hands to keep the water out of the boat. Quote, when the great rollers came roaring at them and the heaving over them like a mountain, Vote was apprehensive that he was about to have to swim, and then and there made up his mind if the boat swamped to ride the cow, which was swimming after them, to the shore. Oh my god. So he's okay. got his eye on the cow. Wow. He's like, come on, Bessie. We didn't know the cow had made it, y'all. The cow is swimming. And somehow in this chaos, it has been made known that Vote will ride the cow to the shore. He's like, this boat sinks, I'm grabbing know, the cow. That's all I got. Uh, at one time, they almost lost a rowlock, but very fortunately, it fell inside the boat, or they wouldn't have been able to row to shore. The blade said, quote, with only two oars, seven people in a 12-foot skiff, and a sea like liquid mountains, warring with the furious elements, it is wonderful that gallant Captain Hahn and his companions reached terra firma. They bailed out the water, which threatened every moment to swamp the craft with their hats in their hands. There were no life preservers in the party, and despair usurped the place of every other thought. Finally, just before reaching the rock-bound coast three miles south from Chuckanut Quarry, a mighty wave swamped the boat. So as the beleaguered little boat approached the shore, it was capsized by this huge wave and the people were driven pell-mell upon the rocks, bruising and laming them. Again, the passengers dragged their weary limbs laboriously through the boiling surf and reached the land in an exhausted condition. Mr. Jenkins tried to build a fire, but although the matches were dry, he could not light them, his fingers being like those of a marble statue. It's a good thing no one had to try to ride a swimming cow because... Apparently, none of the cattle from the wreck steamer reached the shore, although many of them swam a remarkable distance, apparently. 
Oh my goodness. Poor Vote, he's watching his cows drown They're one by one. They're all drowning in sand. Well, oh my goodness. I didn't know a cow could swim in the first place. Right? But Jesus. hallelujah. Imagine those cows, how terrified they are. And the sheeps. All of them. Oh goodness. Okay. So recall that Bowden had stated to the PI that Captain Han had asked him to stay with the remaining passengers until he could return for them. To which Bowden agreed. Note that Captain Han did not go back out <laughs> in that little boat after reaching shore. Although... Could you blame him? As that did not sound easy or even safe to do so. But I could see why, after the fact, Bowden was probably a little pissed off. Like, dude, you said you'd come back for me and you didn't. But how could he? They almost died. So Bowden later stated that it was clearly Han's duty to return to the wreck and save those remaining upon it, and that any one of the other five men who went ashore with him could have just as well carried the news to Fairhaven and had assistance sent from there. In fact, 16-year-old Melvin Cummins also told the Anna American newspaper that after the landing he wanted to return in the boat for those on the wreck but he could not get anyone to accompany him oh boy so the 16 year old Melvin Cummins is like I'll go back somebody come on and nobody would go I mean I cannot blame them no it's traumatizing but yeah that's part of your job Melvin for thinking of the rest of those people out there he's like worried about them okay so what did happen was from various accounts piecing things together it's not wasn't completely clear but they made their way to the burfiend property Mm -hmm. so we got dick burfiend remember him who had come to this area in the 1880s brother henry and they owned a bunch of property out there on chuckanut so dick burfiend and his wife and small child basically would have been out there in like a cabin or house of some sort and the burfiend road then led from their place along the waterfront past the quarry into the town of fairhaven Mm. so vote reportedly carried mrs Coutsman two miles from the beach to shelter <laughs> at the Burfines. According to one account, Captain Hahn and some other members of the crew secured Richard Burfines' horse and rode that to Fairhaven. So they hastened to Fairhaven, six miles away, through the brush on the run. Melvin Cummins recollected, When we got to Wildcat Cove south of Chuckanut, I found a trail leading to a road. I walked all the way to Fairhaven, got in town just before dark, and found a newsboy who said he knew where Mr. Snyder lived. I asked him if he would show me the way, and I told him I had no money but a pocket full of agates that he could have. He said that was better than money, so we were on our way at once. Mrs. Snyder bandaged my hands and put me to bed. So I'm like, this is a really cute account because... He's like, I've got some agates. Oh. But, but also, like, why? what's Melvin? The 16-year-old, is he on his own? He just walked to Fairhaven by himself. It's unclear. It doesn't sound like there's any, Nobody with went with him. Aww. He's the fucking hero of this whole thing. <laughs> I don't know who this the Snyders are that he's mm-hmm. referring to or yeah. whether they're related to the engineer who's also named Snyder. Something about or Snyder. anything. Anyway. So one paper stated that the men on the rafts were indebted for their lives for the captain's promptness in securing the services of the tug Boyden, which went to their rescue, not to be confused with Bowden. So we got a tug Boyden. Not Bowden. In Fairhaven. Got it. That the crew has 
went to go say, hey, go pick up our friends who are out there floundering at sea. However, other accounts stated that when Han reported to Captain Buckley of the tug that the Buckeye had capsized and was bargaining with him to go out to tow in the wreck, that he didn't say anything about people clinging to the wreck and that they only found out several minutes later from another member of the crew, which I'm presuming is the engineer. But that's a little weird. Huh. All right. I don't know. I don't know where I stand here. Right. Meanwhile, Mrs. Scoutsman is taken from the Burfines to the home of Mr. and Mrs. A.M. Lou of Fairhaven, where she was reportedly near crazed with grief. Quote, the wife of the deceased, bruised and wounded, was cared for at the home of A.M. Lou, and she was nearly delirious all night and raved of her husband and his bloody appearance on the wreck when she saw him for the last time. So no, we just spoilered it that he does become deceased. He does eventually become deceased. Oh my goodness. Poor lady. He's our he's our specialty. one casualty. Mm-hmm. No, Alpheus Al Lou was a liquor dealer and saloon guy. We aren't sure exactly where he was living at the time, somewhere in the Fairhaven vicinity with his wife Mary and teenage daughter Lulu. Lulu I love that. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other four were still out afloating at sea. And you'll recall the remaining four, the mate, Captain Bowden, the abstractors, Mr. Asher and Mr. Bennett, and poor bloody Mr. Kautzman were clinging on the life rafts or rafts or whatever, which were tied to the capsized steamer until it started to sink. The hay had been loaded on the boat with the livestock and that was keeping the boat afloat lying on her side. But after about three hours, it began to sink and Team Life Raft decided to cut loose. The papers reported, They severed connection with the Buckeye and their life rafts were knocked about by the waves like bubbles. They began drifting with the wind and tide. Mr. Kautzman, believed to likely have been weak from loss of blood, became numb with cold and began to struggle to hang on. The Blade reported that about 6.30 o'clock, Kautzman called to the others for assistance and that he could hold on no longer, that it was impossible for them to help him. End quote. So he let go of the raft and was drowned and buffeted by the sea, the life preserver clinging to his body faithfully. So the one guy with the life preserver. was the guy that went down. Damn. According to the mate, Bowden, he had risked his life to try and save Kaufman, who was bloody and out of it. He'd gotten him onto the life raft from the Buckeye and even hung onto him as long as he could. Kaufman would have been saved if he had held onto the raft only 20 minutes longer. Asher and Bennett later spoke highly of Bowden, saying he did much to encourage them to cling on until relief reached them. The tug J.E. Boyden arrived about 7 or 7.30 p.m. Three men, all of whom were so thoroughly chilled that they were helpless, were still clinging to the raft. Asher, Bennett, and Bowden had been almost ready to drop into the water themselves from cold and exhaustion. They had been in the water for about three hours, clinging to the life rafts. They were picked up about two miles offshore opposite Chuckanut Bay. Mr. Asher said he could not possibly have lasted half an hour longer. He was incapable of action, and so were his companions. They had to be lifted to the tug by their rescuers. So as for the Buckeye... Oh, still out there, (laughs) but it's sunken now. It's started to go down. Another boat, the tug Katie, had also been out in the gale with the tug Boyden, and they were trying to wrangle the wreckage until almost midnight. Uh, The tugs both tried for an hour to tow the wreck of the Buckeye into port, but they just couldn't manage it with the stormy sea. I can't believe they tried. I know. And then I'm imagining that you're like the mate and those other guys shivering on board the ship while they're Yeah. I mean, like, um, fuck it. Can (laughs) Can we we go home now? (laughs) Screw the boat. I'm, I'm, oh my. 
my God. So the Reveille reported, The storm of Tuesday night lingered Wednesday. At that time, a particular spectacle presented itself on the waterfront. The tug Boyden was seen steaming south in the harbor before the city, towing some submerged thing from near the mouth of the Nooksack. The tow was said to be the steamer Buckeye, which the tug had picked up off Fort Bellingham, where the wreck had drifted after she capsized 10 miles away. There was nothing to indicate a steamer in the tow as the cabin had been washed off and a few heavy deck timbers only rose above the water, and over these the water dashed. The wreck was taken to Fairhaven and beached at the ocean dock. Another account stated, It is pretty well smashed, (laughs) and the hull is about all that is of any value aside from the machinery. (laughs) So the boat had interestingly drifted all the way from Chuckanut to over by Mm. where Fort Bellingham is. So that's over by where the Smith Gardens is off of Marine Drive today. So everything seems to float up there in the bay there at Marietta. Okay. Including the body of poor Mr. Kelson is there too. So his body gets found on April 5th also, the Revolution reported Kautzman's body found. The sea gives up its dead. Body drifts 10 miles and is washed up at Fort Bellingham. The body of Kautzman was found on the beach at Uncle John Bennett's place near Fort Bellingham yesterday afternoon by two boys named Mitchell and Gear. Although then the blade said it was Frank Ely and James Mitchell. So I don't know, some boys. But John Bennett's place. So we've got Bennett Mm -hmm. Drive out there, kind of past the Coconut Grove. Mm -hmm. So where the old cement plant is, that is is the former John Bennett land, and he was our Johnny Appleseed orchard planting dude. But apparently some guy had been watching the body with his opera glasses for two hours out at sea. Um, But the boys got the credit and a reward. (laughs) So they enlisted help from some other folks, and the body was carried to the Plank Road and taken by wagon to Coroner Brackett's undertaking rooms, which were on C Street in Old Town, down off Holly, at the time. And Coroner Brackett searched the remains in the presence of a Blade reporter and several other spectators and (sighs) sewed in a quilt-like pad, which in turn was sewed to the chest part of his undershirt, was six hundred and thirty five dollars in gold coins in a little Aww, pouch because he was going to pay yeah. the, pay the folks oh, his man. watch had stopped at 408 he was neatly dressed and wore a diamond pin in his shirt front oh, damn. his watch was a fine gold instrument he still had on the life preserver Aww. Which had kept his body afloat while it drifted with the tide about 10 miles from the scene I'm of the disaster. he made it back. Did, I hope the widow got the stuff. Well, yes, she, she did. got the coin. And she the, did. Oh. And a hefty insurance policy. Oh, can you imagine being a little little kid? Can we get some help getting this dead body to shore so we can I get our reward? I picture it like stand my knee. They're like, we it's heard totally, there's a body. Yeah. Oh, that, guy, that weird guy on the hill <laughs> with the opera glasses says there's a body out there. <laughs> Okay, but we gotta go back to the livestock. None of those poor bastards made it, but apparently some of them washed up as well. The Blade reported on Saturday, April 6th, there will be a... (laughs) Why didn't I see this coming? There will be a big barbecue tonight on the beach south of Squalicum. Four cows and two sheep are being roasted for the grand fete. The roasts are remnants of the Buckeye wreck. 
That is so dark. And also vote being like, can we get some like donations (laughs) for my fucking livestock that you're all eating? Aside from enjoying some delicious roasts, people were trying to piece together exactly what had gone wrong in the case of the steamer Buckeye. The paper speculated on what happened to cause the tragedy and if anyone or anything was to blame. So everyone was looking critically and pointing fingers at the captain right. and crew of the vessel. Of course, mate Bowden was quick to blame Captain Han. Oh, man. But I got the feeling that Han was well-liked and Bowden maybe not as much. <laughs> so there okay. was a lot of people defending Captain Han, especially in the newspapers. The Islander said, It seems useless and unnecessary to attach blame for the accident to anyone. Perhaps Captain Han was indiscreet in not stopping at Anacortis until the storm had abated. But one thing seems certain, and that is when the crash came, he was as cool as the average captain is expected to be, and those who survived the wreck owe their lives to his prompt action. Okay, according to the Reveille, investigations into the causes were going to be made by the inspectors of vessels for the Puget Sound District at Seattle. The captain, crew, and possibly the passengers were to be interrogated concerning the details of the accident. They said in the newspaper, it is evident from voluntary statements made by the survivors that there will be considerable conflicting testimony. Ooh, uh. So I searched and searched for a follow-up on this inquiry, but it doesn't seem like anyone was charged with any crime in the aftermath of the incident. Or if they were, I couldn't find any, any reports at all. But I think that might have something to do with the fact that on oh, um, shortly after the Blue Canyon mine disaster occurred, and that eclipsed the whole story of the Buckeye in the news. So. Yeah. When more than 20 miners lost their lives in an explosion at the Blue Canyon coal mine at the south end of Lake Whatcom, that remains the largest loss of life in an industrial accident that we've had here. So that was that took up that was in the newspaper space yeah, yep. for days. I did find mention of the need for better cargo inspection. I said <laughs> the necessity Gosh. of a cargo inspector at every port oh, is okay. emphasized by the dreadful fate of the steamer Buckeye. Well, these tiny little boats, you're all low 20 ass damn sheep on it. You know what? Next time you guys get on a ferry, thank the the folks that are grumpily (laughs) putting you on either side. Right. Well, the little steamer Buckeye was repaired and put back on the same route within a short time of the accident. As soon as April 9th, 1895, Tuesday, the blade reported... The steamer Buckeye has been beached and work has begun repairing her, renovating and oiling her machinery, etc. While she was being repaired, Andrew Newhall engaged a substitute steamer to take over the route. In July, she was back on her run, and the Anacortes American reported, The steamer Buckeye has resumed her old route and is looking as neat as a new pin. The Buckeye is very convenient for our people when they wish to visit the Bay Cities. Oh my lord. However, in September of 1895, the steamer Buckeye was fined $500 for not carrying a life raft and not having life preserver properly distributed. Right, this is only a few months later. (laughs) All right, so suffice it to say that the severe lack of safety gear and procedures was an ongoing problem. Okay, let's talk about the fates of some of our characters yes. after the wreck. Uh, okay. So first of all, poor Mr. Kotzman's body. He's shipped to Anacortes, and the Anacortes American reported on his funeral, which took place from the parlors of the Hotel Wilson, which he had owned. The Knights of Pythias and Oddfellows Lodges were present and accompanied the remains to Fern Hill Cemetery, where the services were conducted by the Pythians. He had so some insurance. He's got a nice burial. He had some insurance. 
A few years later, in 1898, however, Mrs. Bertha Kautzman filed a lawsuit against Andrew Newhall, owner of the steamer Buckeye, for quite a lot of money, which is weird because Newhall wasn't on the boat. But I guess as the owner, mm, I could not find the outcome been. of that. Oh, so man. question marks. But she had already collected her deceased husband's insurance policy. So I'm like, was she out of money? Like, what's going on here? Yeah. Well, she sounds so pretty here's, distraught. Here's a twist. In 1899, Captain Bowden also sues Newhall for money owed him for his time working on the Buckeye. Ooh. It was a small amount, but the court rendered in his favor. Then even more interestingly, Charles Edward Bowden and Bertha Mrs. <gasps> Kotzman got married Ooh, oh goodness okay it didn't last long damn five it. years oh they were married interesting and hmm. they both filed lawsuits against newhall exactly anyway mm. so the divorce case after this short-lived marriage of the two was pretty scandalous and was in the papers and bertha claimed bowden had lost all her insurance money from her dead husband in bad investments and that he was philandering with an invalid girl Yikes. So the divorce was granted. And Bowdoin, he died in King County in 1910. So five years after. Aged 58. Alone. (laughs) Sweet Jesus. Okay. Uh, You sound like not the best. I know. He sounds like a rough character. So Bertha lived with her son in Tacoma until 1925. She passed away at age 68. So boat owner Andrew Newhall, he continued as the owner of the Buckeye and other steamships. Side note, after selling what would become Rosario to Robert Moran, Newhall purchased property known as Idlewild on San Juan Island from another old captain, Captain Warbus. Hmm. Looks like Warbass. Mm-hmm. I like Warbass. <laughs> and on that property was the cottage of Captain George E. Pickett. Ooh, another Pickett house. I know. Okay. Anyway, that's a side note. Captain Oscar Hahn, he kept on a steamboating. And he worked for the PAF, Pacific American Fisheries, living on the islands. And he died in 1936 at about age 64. One of his sons followed in his steamboat and footsteps and the other became a dentist. Okay, Melvin J. Cummins, the hero of this whole (laughs) story, the teenage fireman. By the age of 20, he was working as a marine engineer. He got married and had two daughters, worked in maritime trade all his life. Colby found a cute photo of him on Ancestry.com in his little maritime uniform and cap with a cigar in his mouth. And a big smile. Melvin died in 1958 at Force Delicum, age 79. So we don't know about the engineer, Mr. Snyder, or the mysterious cook. <laughs> we could not confirm their identities. And there was very little information about them. So William Asher, though, of the abstractor duo, remained in Bellingham and worked various administrative or office jobs. And he died in 1925, age 75. The fate of the other abstractor, Bennett, is unclear, but he didn't appear to stick around this area. Tony Vogt apparently moved, and I remember that, that's our butcher man, man. that's our cow man, moved some of his operations to Bellingham in the Happy Valley neighborhood. He had a slaughterhouse on what was the outskirts of Fairhaven at the time, way out on Donovan Avenue near 31st Street. Tony Vogt later died at his home over on 11th Street in Bellingham in 1932 at the age of 74. Okay, we got Will D. Jenkins. He was elected Secretary of State on the People's Party ticket in 1896 and served the term of four years. His second wife died in 1899 and he remarried number three and then he died two years later in San Francisco in 1902 at age 49. But here's a parting quote from Will D. Jenkins about this whole thing. Life on the ocean wave and a home on the rolling deep is very pretty in song, 
went on the shore. Yeah. So that's how he felt about that. I don't blame him. The steamer Buckeye went on to have a long career. The Buckeye also made the news when the Great White Fleet came to the Pacific Northwest as one of the many steamers who took advantage of that historic event to transport passengers out to see those ships. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that is a whole other story. That's later. Have to talk about that was in 1908. Uh The Buckeye kept on uh, chugging along until it was last operated by the Olympia Towing Company. And apparently its ultimate fate was destroyed by fire in 1930 (laughs) at Stavis Bay in Hood's Canal, according to McCurdy's Marine History of the Pacific Northwest. It definitely was the little... It was the little steamer that could, The little steamer that could. It kept going, man. Well, dude, any... I have no coherent thoughts. That was riveting. But the safety regulations thing is kind of mind-boggling to mm-hmm. me. It's just like, like a lot of people have to die before we're like, okay, we'll wear seatbelts. Yeah. Um, we'll wear helmets. We'll wear helmets. Oh, we'll, res- <laughs> we'll have gun control. Right. Huh. Oh, freedom. Yeah. But it hasn't gotten any better, yeah, y'all. But same old story. It is. History does repeat itself. There's nothing new under the sun. Are we going to talk about how this is our last episode of the yeah, season? We're Guess what? We're gonna, we need a break. <laughs> Can you tell we've become more and more unhinged? No, this will be edited. So you won't even notice uh, <laughs> how much how much ended up on the cutting you room have floor. No idea. <laughs> but October is our craziest, busiest month. Will be all the spooky tours. Then, yeah, it's gonna be our off season. And we had the idea that while we take a break to research more new topics and things and record some stuff, get ahead of ourselves so we don't have to be. <laughs> scrambling to get these out and edited in time to release to you. We're going to re-release some of our episodes that we recorded in 2020. Pandemic As part era. of the Bad Town series of the City of Subdued podcast. Yeah, we're really proud of those. That was like the little seed that got planted yeah. to bring you all what we have here today. And, and so some of you may have already listened to those, mm-hmm. but if you feel like listening again, whatever. We may add some little updates. Oh yeah. But we're gonna mostly be working on new material because you know what this is a lot of work and we would love to hear your ideas and what you'd like to hear us talk about Mm -hmm. in the next season so give us a shout we have some ideas but we're always open we would love to hear your guys's input feedback thanks for listening yeah and we have coming up we're going to be emceeing at sea feast in october as well on top of all the other things we are going to be pirating it up over there at sea feast on october 14th and 15th come to that it is a wonderful fun festival with lots of great stuff happening this year and i also want to point out before we end that if you like the gallus brothers our theme song devin champlin who is one of the gallus brothers has a new album out on Bandcamp. up down all around check them out we'll link to that in our show so uh, guys wraps up the episode We'd like to thank you all for listening to Belling History with the Good Time Girls. Do subscribe and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. Like us on social media. Check out our tours and events. Read our show notes and blog. All of that at bellinghistory.com.
to thank Devin Champlin and the late great Lucas Hicks for the use of the Gallus Brothers song, Too Bad West Coast Blues. You can find the Gallus Brothers tunes and the new album on Bandcamp, and you can find Devin Champlin downtown at Champlin Guitars in Bellingham. Lost my hat, lost my brim, looking like a coast, that's swinging from a limb, that's too bad, too bad. All right, well, tune in soon for some repeat episodes and more from Belling History. I'm dead. I'm dead. Thank you. Thanks.